Welcome to Our Journey to Equity, a podcast all about turning passion into tangible impact, alchemizing the shared desire for equity into actions and engaging conversations that expose health and social injustices and empower us with the tools and information we need to protect our right to live healthy lives. Together, we'll explore the power of community voices in achieving health equity for people of color. It's time to make a difference. Together, we can create a future where health equity is a reality for all. Join Tamara and her guests on Our Journey to Equity. everybody. Welcome back to Our Journey to Equity. I'm Tamara. I'm a healthcare executive and health equity practitioner, and I am on a journey to explore all the many different journeys that fellow health equity practitioners, community leaders, community members are taking to try to make health equity a reality for all of us and for our communities and for our families and for ourselves as individuals. I am joined on each one of our episodes by another dynamic leader in the space for them to share their journey. And today I am so excited to be able to introduce to you all Miss Ebene Lockett, who is the CEO and founder of Harvesting Humanity. So I can't wait for us to learn a little bit more about Harvesting Humanity and where that vision came from. But first, as fellow journeyers, it's really important to me that we do not journey alone. And that's just also symbolic of how we go through life, right? And so to get us started, we are going to enter our journey together. And I'm gonna share a little bit about my journey to equity, what led me to this moment where we are here sharing our stories together. Um, And then we'll jump into learning more about yours. Does that sound good? Great, thank you for having me. Absolutely, thank you so much for being here. So. Um, For those of you that have followed the show for quite some time, you already know this, but for those of you that may be new, I'll share a little bit about how I landed into health equity work. So growing up, I grew up in a middle class suburban area in um, sort of Marietta, you know, East Cobb area of Atlanta. And in that space, being one of the few black families at the time, this was in the 90s, um, you know, late 90s, Uh, very obvious all the many differences between my experiences and many of my white counterparts and their experiences and what their families went through and what my family went through and so I didn't have the language at the time but it was very clear to me that there were differences um, obvious differences in just race racial issues and how I was treated in school and Um, you know, how people expected me to be ghetto or, um, you know, some of my (laughs) even black friends who expected me to not be so white, right? And so it's like this this space where you don't really ever fit in anywhere. And, um, you know, you just kind of walk through life knowing that, um, you know, your experience is different and there needs to be something for other people like me that, um, and for other families like mine that allows us to, you know, age gracefully as other families are able to age, that allows um, all of my, you know, the males in my family to live a full life rather than having extended family members whose lives are are cut short because of so many issues that affect black men at a higher rate than um, others, right? And so, um, you know, I just grew up with a hyper awareness as my mom would describe it about um, my own health and my family's health 
And I would say that as I began to pursue a career and, and just navigate college and all of those experiences together really helped inform who I became and what I was going to advocate for for my community, whether you are um, you know, living in the middle class, whether you are struggling in poverty, whether you are at the highest echelons of society, there's one thing that unites us all as a community, and that are, those are the you know, racial justice issues that a lot of times it doesn't matter who you are, right? How much money you have, what position you hold, for someone that is not a part of our community, they'll always kind of look at you and assume that what, whatever is in their own bias about you, right? And so part of my work and part of my mission has always been to um, advocate for that justice side of um, our work. And I just happened to choose healthcare as the mechanism for me to do that. So we are not here to talk about myself. We are here to learn a lot more about our distinguished guest, Ms. Evan A. Lockett. We would love to explore um, what brought you here? What, what brought you into this work uh, as CEO of Harvesting Humanity? Um, I, I'll just kind of share based on what you said, health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that you brought in all of the intersectionalities and in the ways that health and wellness really show up in mm -hmm. our whole selves, mm -hmm. right, in our whole care. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about that word health and health care, people often think it's a medical term, yeah. like what's happening in your physical self. Mm -hmm. But there's that cycle, social, emotional, mm -hmm. psychological um, self that we have to care for as well, that That's spiritual good. self that we must attend to. And so um, I taught for 22 years English language arts and humanities. Mm -hmm. um, and that humanities really is um, a holistic approach to health and wellness and uh -huh. health care uh -huh. and how we show up for the, not just ourselves, right? right? But for one another and for this earth and our environment that feeds and sustains us. Mm -hmm. And so I, as an educational practitioner, I actually went to school to be a clinical child psychologist. Wow. Um, <laughs> that was what I, I thought I'd do, but yeah. I, I've always been a writer and arts has always been a therapy of mine. Uh, and so okay, okay. I double majored in English and psychology. And when I graduated undergrad from Fairfield University in Fairfield, Connecticut, they said, um, would you like to teach? And I was like, absolutely not. Are you insane? <laughs> One, it doesn't pay nearly enough. Uh -huh. And two, you want me to teach high schoolers who, you know, at that time I was almost near their age. And um, what changed my mind quickly is that I remembered how many educational practitioners poured into me. Uh -huh. um, and not just to your point into my academic self, but into my social self, to mm. my spiritual self, to an awareness of who I was. Mm -hmm. Because um, much similar to you, I was in, uh, academic institutions where I was one of the only or right. one of the few mm -hmm. um, and and I had some very you know emotional experiences in those spaces because one I did not come from the upper echelons. I came mm -hmm. from a housing project mm. and um, my mom and my dad separated when I was just a year old and mm -hmm. she was left with five children to care for and so when I think about what that means to be a single parent in a housing project um, she always made too much to be able to get any kind of assistance, mm. but not enough to manage, you know, a single household right. with five children. And so we, we knew early on that there were gonna have to be some things that we did to make sure that that wasn't the trajectory for ourselves or our children. And so academics yeah. was one of those things I barreled into. Um, and so I went to a, 
a school that was really um, elite. Mm -hmm. um, I was in a program even within our public school when I went there um, that was a magnet program. So we learned Latin, we, we oh, learned anatomy wow. from sixth grade all the way till we graduated. Mm -hmm. And so when I graduated, I had this, this dual degree that said, oh, you, you have a, a range of experiences you can explore. Why not be a teacher? Well, in my hometown, that came through a pilot project. It came in the year I started teaching and it left that very same year. So I always tell people wow. that was that was designed to Just usher me into teaching. Yeah, yeah. Um, I committed to two years. I did 22. <laughs> um, and so I absolutely fell in love with what I was doing. Um, and even having to do two and three jobs to maintain oh, wow. what it took to do that one job, you know, I also, you know, really boosted up my entrepreneur skills then and realized I've got to maintain a family. Mm -hmm. I've got to be able to, you know, feed us. And, you know, my husband and I, we were, he's an entrepreneur. So we've had that in our bloods ever since. Wow. And we were just trying to figure it out, right? Yeah. Um, and, and this kind of takes me into my healthcare journey, mm -hmm. even in the sense of a medical, our third child was born with sickle cell. Mm. And up until that time, I had known that I was traded and one of 13 people of color are. Mm -hmm. um, but my husband who immigrated from Jamaica, we had not known that he had the trait. And so mm. not until we had our third child and it appeared in my son's life that it was ushered into all of our lives. Sickle cell, can you talk to us a little bit about what is sickle cell and what is carrying a trait and you know, your husband being a carrier, you didn't know, talk, talk to us a little bit about just the basics Absolutely. of that. Mm -hmm. um, I'll share a story that's in recent news just so that people can okay. understand the weight of it mm -hmm. because sometimes just knowing what it is isn't enough. Mm -hmm. um, the young lady who, uh, the young child, I believe she was eight, Honduran girl who was uh, mm -hmm. lost her life in detention, mm -hmm. had sickle cell. Mm -hmm. At the border, right? At the border, mm -hmm. she had sickle cell. And so when you have sickle cell, what that means is you have this abnormal hemoglobin mm -hmm. that cannot pass through your body, cannot get oxygen to you, cannot get oxygen to the vital organs. And so you have mm -hmm. one excruciating pain crisis. Um, a lot of sickle cell patients and, and warriors who, who battle with this themselves and their caregivers often have to be in the hospital frequently. They have to miss a lot of school, um, exorbitant medical expenses, but it mm -hmm. all comes from our genetic being. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. we are people of melanated skin, That's right. we get this, what they call an abnormality, but it's actually, um, it was our defense to malaria mm -hmm. um, in mm -hmm. the motherland. So we think right. about, you know, even when you talk about racialized medical issues, mm -hmm. this is a medical issue that impacts people of color. Mm -hmm. um, so primarily you would say African-Americans or mm -hmm. Africans or people of Caribbean, you have Mediterraneans, but as you see with the Honduran girl, you also have people of Latinx mm -hmm. um, who have that history That's right. that they haven't really discovered. Right. Um, and this is one of the ways they discover it, but it, it really is one of those things when you think about it is because of who we are. Yes that this condition yes. exists. It's because of who we are and what we've had to endure. Absolutely. Obviously with malaria being such a significant crisis in Africa, in the motherland, as you say, um, as we all say, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the hemoglobin, the blood cell literally sickles. So it turns into like a sickle. And in that way, it actually helps protect the body against malaria but it comes at a cost, which a are the cost. pain crises that you talked about and, and some of the other symptoms. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so when we found out my son uh, had the condition, that's when we had all of our children tested and um, we realized then that my husband was a carrier. Okay. Um, and so, so uh, what made you 
chest get tested um, to see if you were a carrier. So is this prior to you all having children? Prior to us having children, mm -hmm. I had known I was a carrier, but my husband who immigrated here, they didn't have the same kind of test and mandates that we do in America. I see. So he had not known he was a carrier. And it mm -hmm. wasn't until it manifested itself in our third child, which is our son. I see. Um, mm -hmm. And they, they do mandatory testing of children of African descent. Um, now in America. Um, I did not know that. So yes. every child of color in the United States is now being tested to see if they are a carrier of the sickle cell tree. Mm -hmm. okay. It's called an electrophoresis. So they do the mm -hmm. electrophoresis, get that genetic makeup and find out if you are a carrier because one in 13 who are born in the United That's States right. are carriers. Okay. And so if you're a carrier, you have the likelihood of being able to pass it on a 25% chance, mm -hmm. you know, the genome yes. uh -huh. um, of being passing that trait to your child. Now, if you, both of you are carriers, now you have a 50% chance because you could give them their sickle and they can give them their sickle and now mm -hmm. um, they have the condition. And you all really had no reason to believe that you both were carriers because your first two children didn't have any issues. No issues. Wow. My oldest daughter has the trait. My middle daughter has neither the trait nor the condition. Wow. And my son, mm -hmm. which was our third child, mm -hmm. um, was diagnosed with the condition. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your journey with your son, um, experiencing him having sickle cell disease. Um, we were young parents. Mm -hmm. Let's start there. We were in college, so we were, oh we were both goodness. getting our college degrees. <laughs> you and, were um, kids. <laughs> yeah, we were right at the cusp of graduating college. Mm -hmm. um, and so you usher in this thing that now dictates your movement. Mm -hmm. It dictates how you, you get to live your life and, and the mm -hmm. things that you have to do mm -hmm. to make sure your child is well. Mm -hmm. And um, my child, you know, he was just, he was a blessing. And mm -hmm. I say was because unfortunately in 2009, he unexpectedly transitioned. Um, mm. They say due to sickle cell, um, which I'm sure the complications brought him to the hospital, but mm -hmm. in my best estimate, he was over-medicated. And wow. they don't wanna talk about medical neglect. There was, there was that aspect of, you know, he was being transitioned from one hospital to the next. I was following the ambulance, sirens never came on. My mom, who happened to be visiting, and my mother-in-law, who happened to be visiting, my mom had ridden in the ambulance in the front. She didn't know anything was going on. Mm. So there was obviously some points where he was not being monitored the way he should have been monitored. Mm -hmm. And when we arrived at the second hospital, he had coded mm. and, um, and, and was not able to be resuscitated. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that that is how his life transitioned from this world mm -hmm. to the next. But also you mentioned something that I think is so important um, that happens a lot to communities of color, but also individuals who are struggling with sickle cell, which is medical neglect. Because Absolutely. when you're in sickle cell crisis, that can require hospital visits. I mean, multiple hospital yeah. visits over time. Can you just help share a little bit about what your journey was with that? So um, anytime a child with sickle cell gets a fever, mm -hmm. they are required to go into the hospital um, um, just to make sure there's no infection, mm. to make sure that there's not something else causing the fever. So um, you, you're always vigilant. You're always mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. guard. Mm -hmm. um, you're, we cannot, as sickle cell individuals, and I say myself because even with the trait, I notice things with my own body. Mm. Um, like whenever I travel, the elevation causes mm -hmm. me to swell. It causes me to be uh, less oxygen, mm -hmm. uh, to be deprived of oxygen. And so is, is that vigilance always that you have to think about? Is it too hot? 
Mm. Can that trigger a crisis? Is it too cold? Can that mm. trigger a crisis? Mm -hmm. So things like going to the beach or going, mm. you know, all of those things are calculated movements because mm -hmm. there is a risk. It comes at a cost. Mm -hmm. And that that constant hypervigilance, mm -hmm. hypervigilance um, as, it, as with regards to the condition is, is one of those things that, you know, it's like always... You don't get to rest. Yeah, you don't really mm -hmm. get to rest. Mm -hmm. You never really feel like you get to rest. Mm -hmm. However, you, you also think about you know, making the quality of life as best as you can. Mm -hmm. And so with my son, he, he did everything. He was in chess, he, mm -hmm. he, um, <laughs> he, he, there were some sports he could not play again sure. because of endurance, but he um, loved sports, mm -hmm. soccer in particular, that was he and his dad's favorite. So they would, you know, engage in other ways as fans, if not mm -hmm. necessarily. But he, you know, he lived a normal life and he mm -hmm. was a straight A student, mm -hmm. a young black man who was fixated mm -hmm. on becoming a doctor so that mm -hmm. he could find a cure for sickle cell. Wow, and did he, have a lot of um, sickle cell crises. I, I don't know the plural. Yes, <laughs> crisis. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. No, um, and that was a thing. We we monitored our diet. We were vegetarian and vegan at the time. Mm -hmm. um, we just kind of again were hypervigilant about what he mm -hmm. ate, what he did, um, and he had never before pneumonia. And pneumonia was six months before he transitioned. He had never been hospitalized. Wow. So, wow, so you all were hypervigilant. Hypervigilant, and, and he just presented, the way he presented, um, one, he was, he was a silent sufferer, so you wouldn't mm -hmm. always know when he was in a crisis because mm -hmm. he didn't want to worry mm -hmm. um, others, and he was just a, a, you know, just a really, really heartfelt child, so mm -hmm. he, he was always thinking about how is it going to impact someone else, mm -hmm. and I used to always tell him, but you just have to let me know. He's like, I'll let you know if, if I need to, but other than that, mm -hmm. there's no need to worry. Mm -hmm. and, Th that became one of the things that, you know, I, I remember most about him is just how strong he was. Mm -hmm. But I can only imagine again at what cost. At what cost. At what cost. Yeah, and at what cost to the entire community of um, sickle cell warriors because when they go into the hospital for treatment, a lot of times, um, you know, the providers and the clinicians there, they see a sickle cell patient on their chart and it's something that we do as humans, mm -hmm. but it happens very frequently in the medical field, which is unfortunate, which is you see a black patient, you see a sickle cell, and you're thinking a myriad of things, right? We know that there's a lot of bias, implicit bias um, that happens with providers. And um, unfortunately, there's a lot of bias related to pain seeking or, or thinking that the, the patient is pain seeking. Um, when they are a sickle cell patient. And so when you begin thinking down that path, all of the medical decisions that you're gonna make from that point forward are already jaded, right? You're already clouding your decisions because you're making assumptions mm -hmm. about a group of individuals that are suffering. And in your experience, what you believed in your heart was really that there was um, some neglect that occurred simply because of probably the pain that he was in mm -hmm. and being over med I mean, I'm sh I am certain that the individuals that were providing care to your son were probably thinking, oh, it's another sickle cell patient. They're gonna need this much medication without even thinking through the fact that your son had never been hospitalized. And, and, and was recovering from pneumonia. And was so, recovering from So, you know, pneumonia. look at the charts, you would know that there, let's take some other precautions. Let's, That's um, right. 
you know, and, and, and I always tell them, I'm not a medical professional in the same way, but mm -hmm. when you know your child, you know your child. Mm -hmm. and, and that's one of the things that sometimes you go in and you have to tell medical professionals, um, I may not speak the same language because I know you have a codified way of thinking about mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, pain, pain management and crisis, mm -hmm. but I am a mother first. That's right. And I know my child and I'm telling you, um, my child doesn't need this, they need that. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, so fast forward, we decided after our third child we weren't having anymore, but mm -hmm. fate decided something else. Mm -hmm. And um, seven years later, we had a daughter um, who also has sickle cell, but we didn't know that until she was five years old. Oh my goodness, okay. So you, you have gone through an incredibly painful experience with your son. Yeah. You and your husband have said, we're not doing this again. You know, um, you, as married couples do, you take care of business, right? right. To make sure that you don't <laughs> have another child. So you all did all the right things right mm -hmm. there. And um, you have another child. So seven years after my son was born. So there's a seven year gap. She lived four years with him oh, I before see. he transitioned. Okay. So, um, and that was his urgency. He did not want to find a cure for himself. He wanted to find a cure for his baby sister. Mm. Um, because at that time we had just found out she had sickle cell. Wow. So despite knowing our family history, they tested her and they gave us a misdiagnosis. Mm. They said she had rickets. Mm. And so, and, and I keep the files to this day just in case, because I said people would not believe, given the history of our family, what we've been through and endured, um, knowing that our child has sickle cell, and raising a child with sickle cell, that they would get that wrong. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until she was she went to the emergency room for a pain crisis, but we didn't know it was a pain crisis because again, we had been told she did not have sickle cell. They said the test said, no, she's not. She doesn't have the condition. Oh my Only gosh. to find out that she does. Wow. Um, and so when we moved here in 2007, a lot of nurses had only had maybe a week of their clinical or a week of their entire study learning about sickle cell. Mm. So imagine being under the care of someone who doesn't really know how to care for your condition. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And I think there's still a, a huge gap in that mm -hmm. when you talk mm -hmm. about preparation and, and medical professional preparations. Unless you're a hematologist, you are not really prepared mm -hmm. to be able to understand and be able to deal with what a sickle cell patient is going through. And let's just highlight the importance of that, considering that one in 13 black individuals will be impacted by sickle cell, right? Why is it that there is roughly a week or so of content that nurses and others in the medical field may learn specifically about sickle cell? That just really makes you wonder why isn't more attention and training being brought to professionals in the field to help care for an entire segment of our population that that needs very specific type of care. So uh, you, you mentioned the word endure, and I think that that is such a great word uh, to describe our segue into endure because you were prior to this, you were teaching still, mm -hmm. right? And pouring into young people as your um, teachers have poured into you and you're going through all of this with a son with sickle cell, your, your doc, tell us a little bit about just how you have, uh, how you had to en endure in that period of time and you all moved to North Carolina at some point, like take us through that part of your journey. So uh, New England, where we um, originally from and where my 
all of my children were born up in New England. Um, it's very cold. It can be very, it's mm -hmm. a very cold place and that's not good for sickle cell. I've never liked the cold. I've never <laughs> liked the way it feels. Mm -hmm. I, I told my mother I knew I was a tropical baby in another <laughs> life. Just bring me back home. Yes. Um, and so we had an opportunity to move here. We moved with my sister-in-law who was transitioning jobs and we were like, we didn't know anyone except her, mm -hmm. but it was, it was a Southern place. And then there was a lot of history I was unfolding through um, my own lineage and, and my grandpa my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was a migrant farmer. Mm. So this was like coming back home. So I was like, oh, I would love to live south and it'll sure. be warm and the children will have, you know. And so we decided we were going to make that that jump. Mm -hmm. And when we did, it was, you know, I had immediately gotten a job. I got a job at a Title One school intentionally because this is it felt like home. Right. And And the love and support we received there was just immensely amazing. And it made everything durable mm. because there would be many days where we have to we have we would have to call out because we're in the emergency mm -hmm. room or mm -hmm. we would have to um, take our child to one of the five appointments that they typically have mm -hmm. um, during the month or we would have to go get them from school because they have a huge migraine and can't sit in the, you mm -hmm. know whatever the the thing was we always had a village oh, um, and we found a village in our co-workers I mm -hmm. found a village in my students and their friends and so mm -hmm. it really was a family mm -hmm. and I think that is the only way we can endure this That's is through good. having a village and a community mm -hmm. that that holds you when you mm -hmm. need to be held and you can hold them when they need to be held that's beautiful mm -hmm. and and that is that is how we endured but you know again teaching you know what the pay rate is so it was always a challenge trying to figure out how we're going to cover our out-of-pocket expenses every year and still be able to put food on the table having to mm. decide if we're going to buy this medicine or we're going to get mm. um you know we're going to pay this bill yeah. what does that look mm -hmm. like and of course it's your child's health there's no decision that's right so we we've always been kind of swimming in mm -hmm. medical debt and figuring that out mm -hmm. um although we we held public service jobs mm. um although we were small business entrepreneurs we mm -hmm. were still trying to figure it out mm -hmm. um amass keeping them healthy keeping mm -hmm. them thriving and keeping them whole mm. that is so heart-wrenching you know as a parent it, first of all, before you're a parent, it's really impossible to be able to fathom, to grasp how much you will do anything mm -hmm. to care for your child, to keep your child safe, to keep your child warm, right? To keep your child healthy. And so that is the baseline experience, right? Mm -hmm. Of most, I would say most parents, right? And then you're doing um, the work that you are passionate about, uh, working at a Title I school, which is a very difficult job. Yeah. You know, education in itself is very difficult. Um, it's no secret that educators are woefully underpaid. Mm -hmm. So you're in a public service role, you're woefully underpaid, you have your heart living outside of your body, mm -hmm. you know, trying to just keep all these things together and um, it was your community that helped you, <laughs> that kept you, right, during this period of time. Whew. Like, how did you evolve from this point? Because I'm, I'm sure there was something stirring in you that was like, th this has yeah. to change. Something, I mean, you can do that for a while, yeah. but you can only do that to a point, right? Yeah, um, my husband and I, we both, we both decided at the end of the day that we had to 
get first make sure our children we were there for them no mm -hmm. matter what that took and so the one thing that being an educator did afford me is it afforded me the summers mm. and so I would really double down on the summer and mm -hmm. I would make sure that we had opportunities to spend time away from the things that were the stressors mm -hmm. um, we, we you know both of our families always again have been really really supportive and mm -hmm. so we were able to to take the kids out of the country, allow them to travel and see something different, allow mm -hmm. them to see even healthcare from a different perspective, mm -hmm. from a holistic and communal perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think those experiences, although you know my son's life was short, those are the things that made him such a humanitarian at heart, and mm -hmm. it made him not bleed for himself but bleed for others. Like mm -hmm. thinking, how can I be a solution? Mm -hmm. And I think just keeping our eyes focused on being solutionaries mm. and what that could look like in a world of work as well yeah. as a world of you know service in the school mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. ultimately is why I transitioned outside of the classroom because I realized one I had to make more money if I was going to survive this thing especially you know with the cost of living increase mm -hmm. increases mm -hmm. right now you have to figure out something different you cannot survive you can't even afford to live in, in close proximity to where you teach mm. in this city. Mm -hmm. And that, that to me is a real crime. Mm -hmm. But we, we knew that one, we both had college degrees. Mm -hmm. We both had, you know, as they say, done the right thing, right? right? right. We had, we checked, had all the boxes. checked all the boxes. <laughs> so we had the capacity to figure it out. And by the time our, our eldest graduated, she was a Broad Scholar, she graduated from Myers Park. And then we had our second who graduated from Mallet Creek and went off to Queens. Um, and our, our youngest who, again, she has presented the most severely with sickle cell. So mm. she was hospitalized frequently. Um, she was in Waddell Language Academy and up until sixth grade when we had to remove her because her medical care wasn't being attended to in school mm. in the way that it should have. So we mm. homeschooled her. So on top of all this, we mm. were homeschooling mm -hmm. our seven-year-old, mm -hmm. our seventh grader. She mm -hmm. was seventh grade at the time. And then oddly enough, when you talk about that racialized moment of mm -hmm. understanding that we're not getting the supports we need because of who we are, mm. not mm -hmm. because of what we didn't do, because you said go to college, we did that. You said get it, you know, we did all the things. Um, I had gone to Montgomery, Alabama to the Equal Justice Initiative opening and I was still teaching in the classroom. And I had um, saw two jars of soil. By this time I did my last two years at Cato Middle College, but one of the jars of soil for a lynch man, young black man, mm. was on the campus where I was teaching. Mm -hmm. And it just, it, it opened up something in me like nothing else had. And I said, if I don't make a transition now, I will never be able to advocate in the way that I need to, mm -hmm. to be able to shift systems. Because mm -hmm. I realized it wasn't just the one, you know, the, the, the relationships in communal proximity. I also had to get intimate with systems that were part of the problem mm -hmm. and the reason why we didn't get the support we needed. And I need to be able to still sustain life. Mm -hmm. And I started the company and my husband just was like, do what you have to do right. um, and, and we'll figure it out. Wow. So that's... Um such a powerful moment, yeah. it sounds like, because your experiences up until this point have been to follow the guidelines and the rules within the system, right? Yeah. Stay out of trouble, do well academically, which you did, right? Your, your mother was a single mom, you all lived in housing projects, and you were like, I am going to get good grades so I can go to college, which is what we're told to do. Mm -hmm. You went to college, you did well in college, you got offered a job, 
it was a low paying job, <laughs> but you were passionate about the work, right? And, and you poured into young people that look like, I mean, you were doing the thing. You were doing the thing, you were following all the rules, um, you know, and then these experiences that you all have had. I talk a lot about systems, the systems that we all live, work and play in, in this country. And for minoritized and marginalized populations um, like ours, the system is designed so that we are pushed aside, so that we can be overlooked, you know, or that we can fit into a very small part of the system. Mm -hmm. And unless you're a part of that community, you don't understand that experience, right? Absolutely. But it's when you're in the community and you see how people look at you or assume things about you, like I, I talked about before and the experiences that you all had when people looked at your son's chart and made an assumption, right? Mm -hmm. And even as, as his mother, who was a part of this community that is marginalized, you, you spoke up on his behalf, but the assumptions of others can still, you know, help, can still be a part of the problem, right? Um, and so this theme of this, you know, recognizing that you're following the rules of the system, but the system is still putting you in a box that's really hard for you to break out of and provide for your family and for your family to be able to thrive, especially with your daughter um, now presenting with sickle cell. Um, that's a real experience. And that's Absolutely. a real experience that you went through, but so many others in our community are experiencing that. I did all the right things, but I'm still drowning in student loan debt. I did all the right things, but I'm still drowning in medical debt. I did all the right things, right? But I'm still stuck in this same entry level role because they won't promote me because they think I'm too this or too that or too whatever. And so um, you had this experience where you're looking at these two jars that come from the same system, right? The right. soil is the same ground, but something happened in a specific <laughs> jar that was horrifying. Um, and that is the day in the lived experience of many of our people and truly the lived experience that you have had. And that was a turning point for you. It was. Mm -hmm. So how did you evolve from that point? I, I gave my 30 day notice. Um, <laughs> I told, told my, my principal I would not be able to return, mm -hmm. but um, I would stay connected. And I do a lot mm -hmm. of the experiences that we design. Um, that we engage others in, that we prepare other people to lead mm -hmm. are really about that intersectional work mm -hmm. of health mm -hmm. and wellness. And what does that look like from a holistic perspective? What does that look like to make sure that the needs of everyone, no matter their differing ability and no matter their status That's or no right. matter their school um, zip code, mm -hmm. um, has the ability and the opportunity and the access mm. to really be able to thrive. Because we use that word equity a lot, mm -hmm. especially since um, we all witnessed the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. Every company came out with an equity statement mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you had, here's the first CEO of this company and the first of this. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, it's, it's great that we have a first, but imagine what that first is gonna go through being That's right. the only That's right. or being one of the few. Mm. So we have to really not be satisfied with saying, we're, we're, we, we've opened or peeked through the door. We got to bust the door down. Mm -hmm. Like this door does not, should not bust exist. Bust the door down with support. Absolutely. Right? Yes, absolutely. The, the door shouldn't exist. It your should point. not That's exist. Right. Mm -hmm. And so 
I think I carry that in my work. Mm -hmm. And even now that I'm a consultant and I get to charge differently, so I get to live a little different, mm -hmm. right? I also think that it's imperative for me to think about how am I mentoring those who are coming behind me to do the same? How are mm -hmm. we gonna be advocates in the most powerful way that we can to be mm -hmm. in service to humanity? Mm -hmm. And we do a lot of work around healthcare justice and healthcare advocacy. Right now, we're on the, I'm on the advocacy committee with the assistance fund, and that's a fund that for many years has helped other conditions be able to stay out of that medical debt cycle, mm -hmm. right? Because we know if you have medical debt up until now, it's gonna ruin your credit score, so you're gonna pay higher interest, so you're gonna pay more money for mm -hmm. things, and that cycle mm -hmm. continues. Mm -hmm. And you're not gonna be able to afford the best education for your child, because mm -hmm. again, that cycle continues. Mm -hmm. um, places like that, that break down the door and say, we will pay your expenses where your insurance leaves off. Mm. Um, as of May, they have now included sickle cell as part of that fund. Oh, wow. Um, I know Cory Booker is doing a lot of legislation yes. around holistic care. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's another huge area. When my daughter went to find therapy, mental support, social emotional support, she couldn't find anyone that looked like her. Mm -hmm. um, and she didn't feel comfortable with other therapists and yeah. so now i think there's a, a light shine on the fact that we need more diversity in mm -hmm. our medical therapy spaces and oh. i think all of those are are really hopeful mm -hmm. uh pass in the right direction mm -hmm. and i just want to be a part of those solutions i love the fact that you are a part of those solutions i love the fact that you are taking what was truly a, such a hard um painful experience for your family and turning that into advocacy for so many other families that and that's that also speaks to why it's so important one to really follow that voice right follow yeah. that inkling that push that says you know get out there you mm -hmm. know do this thing that seems so scary because you being there actually represents an entire community it represents all of us and without your voice at the table, is anybody thinking about sickle cell? Is anybody thinking about access the way that you and, and all the experiences that you bring to the table are bringing? You know, so that just really, really speaks to how important the power of, of one person's voice can be. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I just want to say to add to that, it is, you know, I stand on the shoulder of many giants. Mm -hmm. I think about one of the things that's not often talked about is the nurse who helped open St. Jude. Mm. She was a black woman, a black nurse who lost her child to sickle cell. I did not know that. A wow. lot of people don't know that. So again, we talk about why are some things kept hidden and closed. When you hear St. Jude, you often don't hear sickle cell. You hear right. a lot of other um, issues and, and conditions, but you don't hear sickle cell. Mm. Those are the things we have to be more vigilant about. And I say that I also stand in arms with so many. Yes. My own family, my husband, my children, mm. they are just as passionate advocates as I am. In fact, um, my daughter who suffers with sickle cell um, or lives and survives with That's sickle right. cell, I That's should right. say, um, she just received an award from the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services for her sickle cell advocacy. Wow. And, and she is, she is um, so much like her brother in that way. She is always like, if I can turn my pain into someone else's joy, yes. um, let me find out a way to do that. And, and that's what she does. She gives with her heart. 
Um, I have so many community members who have, whether it's getting on the bus to donate blood, mm -hmm. um, swabbing their cheeks to see if they can be a match for the only cure. Mm -hmm. I have so many people who stand in arms with me that that is the beauty, you know, even though there's the power of one, there's also the strength of the collective. Oh, and, and I yes. stand in both of those. Yes, yes, we can be both and we can stand in both, right? Uh, I love that, the power of one and the strength of the collective. And I just also love how much your son lives on through all of you and through your daughter. You know, it's certainly not a life in vain by any means. Um, talk to us about something that you just said before we get to, because we are definitely going to get to how we can elevate you, you know, and how we can elevate your work. Um, share with us a little bit about um, the only cure and why blood donations, especially in black and brown communities, is so important. I never forget I was doing a presentation at um, CPCC around sickle cell and the president, um, the then president said, he said, um, well, why do you think it is that so many black people don't donate? And, you know, I had to like take a deep breath That's and right. going Pause. back to that intersectionality <laughs> that you talked about. I just started naming us. I said, Henrietta Lacks, do you know her story? And I started telling a few other stories and I said, um, we have to develop a level of trust between systems Absolutely. and people of color because mm -hmm. we've been we've been abused mm -hmm. and we have to really acknowledge those historical harms so that we can move forward. And I said, so it's not that, you know, our communities don't care. Our communities are worried about what you're going to do with the That's blood right. or what you're going to do with the bone marrow. That's right. And and we have to start, you know, and is it really going those, to go to us? And is to it really us? going to right. go to helping us? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And 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 that has been one of um, my greatest joys of seeing more people donate mm. and more people starting to understand that they can be the cure. Mm -hmm. um, just hearing from so many people who have had the successful bone marrow transplant and um, their donors could have been family members, but they also could have been strangers from around the world. Wow. Um, it, it is just such a thing to be able to save a life literally mm -hmm. in that way. And I, I want people to be able to know you can you can be the solution. Mm -hmm. And especially if you have the same ancestry, you share common genetic DNA. We definitely need you because there is um, we, we just have a stronger affinity to people who have the same genetic makeup yes. as we do. So, OK, if I'm listening to this for the first time or watching and I'm like, I want to I want to get in there and help. I want to see if I have, um, you know, any DNA that can help someone with a cure. What is the cure, the bone marrow cure? So it is um, it's actually you you get a, you get a swab to first of all, find out if you're compatible. And if you're compatible, they take some of your marrow and it's transplanted into a patient and they start to produce your marrow. So now they're producing marrow that is not sickle mm -hmm. um, uh, marrow that Hemoglobin is not going to produce. Not, mm -hmm. um, he, sickled hemoglobin absolutely mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so it most people think oh my gosh it, it is really not an intrusive process um in the way that most people think it is again you can get on the list and if they find somebody who's compatible they'll call you and then i've heard people like say it took me a couple hours and i was just surprised that it was that painful at all and yeah and then um you can choose later on um once you've both had time and the patient has t had time to get well you can choose to meet wow. so i've seen a lot of people who have been that life-saving donation meet their donor wow. um, the person who they donated to and it's mm -hmm. you know critical we also when my daughter um about three years ago was going through a series of crises and it was just stuck in a crisis after crisis. 
we have made the decision to start getting uh, monthly dialysis transfusions. Mm -hmm. So she goes to dialysis monthly for the last mm -hmm. three years, um, which has helped her not have to take any narcotics uh, to mm -hmm. manage her pain. But she's getting um, monthly blood donations. And in and of itself, that's a scary process. But at least if you start to think, well, we're, not only am I donating, <laughs> mm -hmm. and you know, I can't maybe give to her, but I can give to someone else. But I'm, I'm creating a cachet of donors that I feel more connected to. Yes. And, and that makes me a little less anxious about that monthly procedure. Mm -hmm. and, and I think so many people are starting to realize that, you know, it's up to us. Now let's get to Elevate. <laughs> I mean, I have gone through uh, a journey with you just in you sharing your story. And um, it's just been so powerful to see your pivot, right? And to see the impact that your pivot has had. How can we elevate you and your work? Tell us more about Harvesting Humanity and where we can get in and support you. Um, so Harvesting Humanity is local, we're national, we're global. So there's, there's many, many ways to um, uh, tap in. You can volunteer, absolutely. I always tell people, people power is, mm -hmm. is important as well. So you can volunteer, you can donate. Um, what, right now we currently have been doing a 10 all in and that is um, we've been touching 10 different places across our state. And just a few short weeks, we'll be in Ghana serving um, the Beautiful. sickle cell community there, which is one of the largest um, sickle cell populations um, in the African continent. So we'll be there serving. Um, one of the things, ways we're going to be serving, um, other than just really hands-on building relationships, is we're going to be bringing uh, pads, purses, hmm. and uh, panties okay. um, for young women yes. in the sickle cell community who that's one of their greatest needs. And we would never have known that had we not been in community. And they said, well, feminine hygiene items are really scarce in our community. Hmm. And we said, well... I'm sure we can get somebody to get a purse. And you know, we yes. can't just have the pads, we gotta have the purse. That's and right. Then we gotta have the, the Some pair modesty, of please. So, yes, yes, yes. P3. <laughs> so um, you can definitely donate in that way. Okay. Um, we always tell people fiscal donations are, are powerful to help us continue the work that we do. Mm -hmm. So we just, we want people to feel that they can donate at every level, even if they don't feel like their purse is the place. Mm -hmm. Put your hands to work, put your heart to work. This, mm -hmm. is, this is work that we all have a place in. Amen. Amen. So tell us where we can find you where can we find harvesting humanity website social handles absolutely any of that? so we're at harvestinghumanity.com and at ig it's harvesting humanity facebook is harvesting <laughs> so we are just harvesting humanity oh i love that thank you so much for trusting your heart um, and for building this community for us all to know that we can do something to support one another okay. and to create a solution. Thank you so much for being here as well. Thank you. Um, you all heard it. Harvesting Humanity. Go out and we will post the website as well where you can find Ebene and her team hard at work in the community and in many communities. And um, in Ghana, we're going to be tuning in and, and um, watching you and following you and your work there. And please donate. Uh, think about what, how you can give, right? Um, you know, is it something physical or is it just volunteering or is it giving blood? How can you be a part of creating a solution for our community that really needs help from us? Um, and also continue to follow us along the journey, this journey and several others, many more. We will continue to share each month to create that awareness and to create that advocacy. What a beautiful 
opportunity to create advocacy through this work with our sickle cell community. Um, so to continue to follow along, please follow us on Instagram at Our Journey to Equity. We are also, our show is on YouTube at Our Journey to Equity and also on our website, www.ourjourneytoequity.com. We also have flipped this into a podcast. So pretty much anywhere where you get your podcasts, you can find the show, Our Journey to Equity and listen along. Thank you so much for joining us. Till next time. Let's continue to amplify the voices of those fighting for equity and create a better future together. Stay connected with us by visiting our website, ourjourneytoequity.com, where you can access previous episodes, resources, and ways to get involved. Thank you for being part of Our Journey to Equity.